Welcome to the Faith Community Church Podcast, a ministry of Faith Community Church in South Boston, Virginia. This week, we have a special guest with us to encourage you to deepen your faith in Jesus Christ. Good rainy morning to you. It's beautiful driving up here today. I think I see some hints of spring in the green. That's a welcome sight. Catherine uh, is resting at home at peace. Um, The cancer, sadly, has spread to her lungs. So uh, she's going downhill pretty quickly, but not that fast. The hospice nurse came yesterday. Now, you would think she would be rather solemn over that. But the nurse said, is this a good time? And Catherine says, yes, as long as you're through before the Duke Virginia basketball game. (laughs) The look on the nurse's face was, (laughs) oh my. Our text today is from 1 Peter chapter four, verse 12 following. Beloved brethren, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that you're about to suffer, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Let us pray. Invigorate our steps, Lord, to follow you. Strengthen our feeble hands and arms to lift them for your service. Make our heart beat quicker when we hear your word. Open our minds and hearts that we would have your mind and heart. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The race called the 880-yard race is considered to be one of the most difficult races uh, in sports. It's too long to sprint it, and it's too short to jog it. So you just gotta get out there and lay it on the line and give everything you've got and push through the hurt. Uh, During the 1968 summer, Olympics. Some runner had just finished the 880-yard dash, and um, a sportscaster stuck a microphone in his face. And I'll never forget as a young teenager watching this, he asked him a question. What do you do with the pain? How do you handle the pain of a long race like that? The Bible teaches that we run our own great race of faith. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 12, those exact words are used. Run with perseverance the great race of faith that is set before you. Uh, You probably don't want to know, but in the Greek, the word race is agonia. We get the word agony from that. It's the marathon, not just an 880, but 20-some mile race. Uh, Life is a lot to take, isn't it? And we run the great agonia, or the marathon of life. It's not a sprint, it's not a jog, it's a long run, and it takes everything you've got. 
Helmut Thielicke is a German theologian that came to Emory University when I was a student there in the 70s, and uh, he was a theologian in residence for a year, continental theologian of some renown. And at the end of his tenure, when he was going back to Germany, uh, he was asked in an interview, uh, what impresses you most about the American church? And he said that you have such an inadequate view of suffering. And I think his words are still prescient today. So many American Christians believe that because I'm a, a king's kid, uh, if my bank account gets empty, I just pray and God fills it up. If my wife puts on a few pounds, I pray for her and she becomes scorching hot again. Um, if I have a pinprick of physical malady, immediately, not, Lord, what can I learn from this, but God, fix it, make it better. And the world is replete with Christians who've quit walking in the church and walking in faith because they don't believe God filled their bank account properly or because he let them suffer in some way. Because of the type of world scripture teaches, a fallen world, the question is not, will I suffer, but how will I suffer? And I want to share some perspectives, uh, some tools that the Bible gives us randomly in various pages of scripture that can lead us to a more healthy concept of pain in our lives. The first is perspective. Listen to what Paul said in Colossians 1 verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings, and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his church. Paul said, I suffer, but I suffer for the glorious sake of the church of Jesus Christ. That's not unlike a woman who's birthing a baby. She suffers. Their birth pains are very real. But she rejoices in her sufferings, knowing that she's bringing a new little life into the world. And the suffering seems so light for the joy of what she's bearing. And likewise, Paul is saying we suffer in bringing the health and maturity of the church more prevalent into the world. Uh, back in 1666, I believe it was, London burned. And a certain architect named Christopher Wren was commissioned to rebuild the city of London. And one of the things Wren was supposed to architect was a cathedral. And he built it, it's still there today, called St. Paul's Cathedral. It's one of the most glorious places to worship in all of London. During the height of the building project, a reporter went and asked two workers building on St. Paul's Cathedral the same question and got two different answers. The question to the first worker, what are you doing? I'm breaking my back, picking these rocks up and putting them up there. Same question to a second worker, what are you doing? I'm helping Sir Christopher Wren build the greatest cathedral the world has ever seen. And you can ask people about their sufferings. And sometimes they're bitter and cynical, other times positive. Perspective is everything. A second way to suffer in a mature way is to see it as a time to learn. In Hebrews, the fifth chapter, verse eight, it says, 
He learned obedience by what he suffered. It was C.S. Lewis that said, you know, in times of pleasure, we don't really learn much because God whispers in our pleasures, but he shouts in our pain. Uh, when uh, John Calvin wrote his Institutes of Christian Life, he talked about the means of grace. After you're converted, there are different ways that God gives you grace to grow. Prayer, fellowship, worship, the sacraments, Bible study, prayer, obedience, being accountable. But one of the means of grace that nobody likes to talk about is suffering. There's no teacher like a time of pain. I remember uh, when I was in my late 20s, I worked for a church that was very difficult. Nothing I ever did was good enough for them. Uh, there were racial issues in the church. Uh, the church was growing by white-collar people, and it was previously mostly a blue-collar church, and that can be a real problem sometimes in keeping people together. And I'd had enough of it, and I couldn't sleep one night, and I got up about 4.30 in the morning and took a walk. Down in the city park there in Burlington, North Carolina, I prayed the prayer that American Christians are good at praying. God, get me out of this. <laughs> and just as sure as I'm standing here, the Holy Spirit quietly whispered, wrong prayer. I put you in it. Ask God, what do you want me to learn in this? And I prayed that prayer and Stayed in that church 18 more years, and I learned a lot, probably more than the people did. Look at the American South and what suffering has done to us. Uh, we lost a civil war. We went through a very difficult time for black and whites alike in Reconstruction, and there was great pain in the South. I was out... Uh, on the bridge at Stanton River State Park a few years ago. Uh, that's the bridge that uh, Jefferson Davis crossed on his train when Richmond fell. And he stopped on the south side of uh, that bridge long enough to burn it so the Yankees couldn't chase him. Then he took the train tracks on into Danville and you know the rest of history. Well, I was walking on that bridge and I said to my hiking buddy, look at the date on the bridge. What does that tell you? The date said this was erected by um, the Virginia Transportation Society, 1901 or 1906. I forget the date exactly. I said, what does that tell you? And he said, nothing, that the bridge is old. And I said, this is the bridge that was burned in the Civil War. And there probably was not a bridge across the Stanton River there until 1901. Do you see how painful Reconstruction was in the South? You lost the bridge 35 years later, hadn't been rebuilt yet. Think of what that did to commerce. Think of the inconvenience. Anyway, because the South has suffered uniquely from war in the United States, look at the things that we've learned in our suffering. The blues, Dixieland jazz, Negro spirituals, the writings of William Faulkner or Virginia's own William Hoffman, James Weldon Johnson, one of my favorite black poets, the short stories of Flannery O'Connor, Eudora Welty, and I could go on and on and on. 
art has poured forth out of the South to talk about our pain and our struggle, the wrongs we committed, the wrongs committed against us. It's not been a, a desert. It's been rather one of the more creative, productive parts of American culture. All this is in a poem that I like. I walked a mile with pleasure. He chattered noisily all the way, yet left me none the wiser for all he had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and not a word said he, but all the things I learned from heartache when hardship walked with me. Many of us owe the grandeur of our lives to the depths of our sufferings. Look at um, Nelson Mandela or Helen Keller or the music of Beethoven written when he was totally deaf. A third way that we can suffer uh, and, and add more grandeur to the moment and not waste our sufferings is to see it as a time for creativity. Do you remember Joseph was a, a young teenage boy when you meet him? And he was something of a braggart. He put on his coat of many colors and he peacocked around his older brothers and said, hey, check out my coat. Dad gave me this. Yours doesn't have any stripes in it. Mine does. And I'm the favorite kid. And the brothers threw him in a pit and beat him up and planned to starve him to death there. But later, an economic uh, wind began to blow, and they said, you know, we can sell this guy to the Midianites as a slave and make some money off of him. So he was sold down the river to be a slave in Potiphar's wealthy home in Cairo. And there he was falsely accused of rape by Potiphar's wife, and he spent 25 years in prison. And he kept praying, God, get me out of this. And God said, no, I put you in it. And you can see this braggadocious teenager who's arrogant and pray, uh, brazen with his brothers, no sense of politeness, but instead he stirs up the anger. You can see him in his sufferings grow and mature so that when Pharaoh dreams, this terrible dream that unsettles him, he offers a great reward to the person who can not only tell him his dream, but define what it means. And it was Joseph and Joseph alone who could do it and save the world from that part of a famine. Remember in the same day, his prison garments were taken off of him. The chains were taken off his hands and feet and a chain of authority as prime minister of the world's most powerful nation on earth was given to him in a single day. And he spoke of his life in Genesis chapter 41, verse 52. God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And it's not just Joseph that you find that. Uh, David, when he was fleeing Saul for his life, wrote many of the wonderful Psalms we've come to love. Many of the letters that we read in the scriptures, including the one today, is a prison epistle that the Apostle Paul wrote when he was in jail. And Jesus did his best ministry while he was dying on a cross. Consider, if you will, the humble oyster. A little grain of sand somehow gets in his mouth when it's open and lodges in his gullet. And it's abrasive. It hurts. Painful. 
and he tries to spit it out, and he can't remove it. And so slowly he begins to emulsify his spittle around that little piece of aggravating sand until he forms a pearl. From his pain, his suffering, comes a pearl. John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress while he was in jail. Now, Biggin Crouch is probably not a name that you've heard much here in Southside in Virginia, but Biggin was the town pharmacist in Drake's Branch, Virginia, about 40 miles north of here. He graduated from the University of North Carolina in 1931 as a pharmacist, and he put his way through school by uh, playing baseball. His senior year, he slid in third base and broke his hip. And arthritis got in the broken hip, and in the 1930s, it basically was untreatable. And all the time I knew Biggin during my ministry in the 1970s, he was always hustling around the town delivering an elixir or a pharmacist prescription to help lessen other people's pain. But he himself knew excruciating pain in his arthritic hips. There you find a man who had a wonderful ministry, even in a hard, hard time. A fourth principle that can really scramble you in your time of suffering is to learn that hope is important. I was in divinity school in the uh, 70s in Atlanta, Georgia, at Emory University. And there was a, a, a man who made my life miserable at that school named Dr. Keith. He was head of pastoral care studies. Now, if you know me, most of the gifts of the Spirit in my life are teaching and encouragement. I'm not a counselor. Uh, I'm not necessarily the best pastor in the world, Johnny on the spot. Uh, sometimes I'm in my study studying when people would rather have me at bedside, and I've always had a difficult time with that. Well, Keith realized that I was an evangelical, and I think he thought to himself, I'll show him something of the real world, and we'll see if his Christianity, his petty evangelism shows up. So do you know what he sent me to do in pastoral care for half a year, my first year there? He sent me to Milledgeville, Georgia, to work in an insane asylum. Now, I'm used to working with logical people. And there was nothing logical about an insane asylum. And I put my time in there, and he just snickered at me. Tell me about your loving God now, after six months in an insane asylum. He sent me next to a burn unit of the hospital. This was a place where people had been burned, sometimes over 80% of their body with third-degree burns in a fiery car crash or uh, an air explosion, an industrial plant burn or something like that. And the, the stench of human flesh burning and the screams, the agony, the inability to manage pain like we've learned since then was very apparent. And then I would have to come and sit down with him in colloquies with other students and talk about what I saw and what my ministry was there. And he said, well, let's hear from you, Mr. Kratz, you who believe that there's an all-powerful God and all-loving. Uh, tell us about your ministry in the burn center this semester. And all I could do is glare at him and say, thank God. 
And he looked at me with benevolent eyes and he said, thank God for what? And I said, when I look at these people suffering with burns like this, thank God for the Bible that says in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed. And this corruptible body shall put on the incorruptible. The uh, head of the religion department at the University of North Carolina is a gentleman named Bart Ehrman. He started off as an evangelical when he went to uh, Wheaton in the Midwest, but then he transferred to Princeton and got a divinity degree. And while he was at Princeton studying theology, he gave up his Christian faith. And he said, even though I've been baptized, I no longer consider myself a Christian. I'm an agnostic. And if you ask him about it, he'll tell you quite honestly, I understand that the Bible says God is all powerful. He can do anything. I also understand that the Bible says God is loving. And I look at the pain in the world and I see no evidence of an all-powerful and all-loving God at work in it. Instead, I see terrible suffering and a God who seems either not there or not existing at all. Well, hope, if you want a definition of it, Bill Gothard, I think, gives one of the best of them. He says, hope is enjoying the things of God's tomorrow today. I don't know how often as a pastor I've had to say to people, this is a distressing moment. But remember, you're not seeing this in its final form. You're not seeing it in its final form. Uh, God doesn't play nine-inning baseball games. He plays till he wins. And the arc of human history is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nothing tells us more clearly where history is heading than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not forever will injustice run rampant. Not forever will human suffering unfold in us and around us. But in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, Christ will come and the church will rise to meet him and we shall be changed. In this hope, Paul wrote, we were saved. One final tidbit of encouragement from Scripture on suffering is to understand that God suffers with us. Do you remember his name, Christmas? He shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. I grew up working in my dad's furniture shop. He paid us a dollar an hour, 10 hour day on Saturday. 10 bucks, let's see, $3 of gas could fill your tank up. Uh, $5 would get you and your date a meal in Chapel Hill at the Scuttlebutt restaurant. Then you could go in a fraternity house and pretend like you were a college kid with a date and get home and still have $2 left, unless she wanted some ice cream. But uh, I asked dad, how did you know how much to pay us? And he said, just enough to keep you hungry because I needed you. We'd go out on the football field and get beaten up on the Friday nights, but 7 a.m. we were in the furniture store getting ready to deliver. And one of the things that I most detested about working in the furniture store was I couldn't get off at four o'clock. 
when it was hot. You just didn't want to go in the warehouse. 103 degrees, the warehouse was dusty, it was not air conditioned. And Dad inevitably on Saturday would say, got one more delivery, boys. Sofa bed. <laughs> Upstairs, fifth floor, in the so-and-so apartments. And that meant that my brother and I had to pick this 500-pound sofa up and twist and turn it in the heat and, and get it in this small apartment. But before that, we had to dig it out of the furniture in the warehouse. Number 317-A, always on the bottom and the back. <laughs> but one of the things I remember about my father is he never said, go down to the warehouse and get this sofa, bring it back, let's clean it up, we're going to deliver it. He would say, hop in the truck, we are going down to the warehouse. And he was there shoulder to shoulder with us, side by side, doing what we did. Now the scripture teaches us that one of the clearest ways we understand suffering in scripture is that it's a consequence of human sin. One of the things the church cannot learn clearly enough is that in the cross of Jesus Christ, we have had the penalty of sin removed from our lives, but we have not been removed from the presence of sin. Sin is all around us, in us, in the church. And these shattered pieces of the fallen world sometimes bump up against us, and we bleed for it, and it's not always fun. I remember a young black man who died and goes to heaven, and as the story goes, he saw Jesus sitting on his throne, and he went over and he said, Lord, I'm so glad to be here, but I got a criticism about you. I, I don't think you know how bad it is down there. And Jesus said, what are you talking about? He said, well, I, I was born into a hated race. And Jesus said, well, I was born Jewish. And you were born a Negro, I see. And he says, yeah, Lord, well, I, I never married in life. And I, I was lonely. And Jesus said, you know, I was single my whole life too. I'm still waiting to meet a bride adorned. And someday I hope to get married. And then the guy said, but you, you don't understand. Uh, we, we worked and we were poor. We often didn't have enough to eat. And Jesus said, the son of man had no place to lay, lay his head. And then the young man went on and says, but Lord, the Ku Klux Klan one night, they burned a cross in front of our house and we had to flee in the middle of the night, four counties away, just to save our lives. And Jesus looked at him and said, Herod tried to kill me and my whole family. And we had to flee to Egypt to be saved. And Jesus put his arms around that young lad and he hugged him and held him close and looked in his eyes and said, Son, I know how it is. I have been there myself. This is one of the uniquenesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ, according to scripture. We're the only faith in the world where our God has the marks of evil on his body. The nail scars are still there. Well, do an experiment with you, at least in your head, or, or do it when you go home today. Take a pot of water and turn the heat up on it, and put it on the stove and bring it to a boil. Put an egg in that water. What happens to that egg? It turns hard boiled, doesn't it? 
Now take that egg out and take a potato and put it in that same pot of boiling water. What happens to the potato? It cooks and becomes soft. Uh, suffering can harden some people's hearts. It can soften others. For some, they waste their sufferings. For others, suffering is a means of grace. Charles Haddon Spurgeon struggled with depression his whole life. In fact, it eventually killed him as a rather young preacher. He was gone from us way too soon. But he used to talk about depression, that black dog that follows me, he called it. And he said, I bless the wave that pinned me to the rock of ages. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord, for all of those in-between verses that give a, a glimmer of light, a ray of hope, a bit of advice, a maturity. And we pray that we can incorporate these verses into our life when we're called on to suffer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about Faith Community Church, you can find us online at FCCSobo.org or on our Facebook page by searching Faith Community Church. As always, God loves you, we love you, and we hope you have a wonderful week.